0: All right, so now that we've finished talking about uh, unconditional election, we will move on to the L portion of TULIP, uh, Limited Atonement. So take it away, Dusty.
1: All right, so Limited Atonement, again, is um, it's another one of those things that it it's uh, the acronym of TULIP. However, You could probably pick some different words or phrases to describe this because it has been um, confusing for some people in the past. But generally, the doctrine of limited atonement says that the the blood of Christ covers a particular or a limited group of people. Um, This is of course in contrast to the belief that all people are saved. Um, Now you have to really kind of get into the weeds a little bit with this because there are so many details and nuances that people can pick at and and branch off into different directions. On the surface, a lot of people would say that, of course, not everyone will be saved. Of course not everyone will go to heaven. Um, there are some people who believe that. Uh, the term for that is universalists. There, there are people who believe that, regardless, um, all people will be saved, eventually. There's, there's some variations of that. Um, some people, they just straight up believe that God is so loving and, in their mind, good that no matter what you've done, no matter anything, when you die, you go to heaven, and basically there is no hell. Um, and of course, limited atonement stands in contrast to that. Um, We don't believe that. We believe that hell is a real place, and it will not be empty. Um, However, there are others who would say they don't believe that, they're not universalists, but they would say that Christ died for everyone or at least he tried to right and they use verses like
0: Uh, it's not God's will that any man should perish right and things like that and so you know taking that verse into context with the totality of scripture uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that Everybody is going
1: to get saved or has the chance to be saved. But right, so, and I'll come back to that verse in a moment. Um, in particular, that one comes out of, I believe, Second Peter, somewhere around there. I believe so. Doesn't yes. it say, doesn't <coughs> the verse say that God
2: does not desire? Yeah, which I mean I know translation is a barrier right. whatever, but it says desire no it doesn't to necessarily perish. say right that no man should perish. Yeah. So but mean,
1: all, but that all men would come to know the Lord. Right, right. Well, actually, let's just go ahead and talk about that right now. Um, so, the word there that's um, desire or will. This is one of those cases, and I'm totally regurgitating all of this from R.C. Sproul. Um, Which is not a bad bad place to regurgitate from. Total credit to him, Um, but that. Enjoy the Lord forever. Right, that um, that word there. In a lot of cases, when you go back and look something up in the original Greek or the original Hebrew, that can provide a lot of insight into what's being said in that passage. Um, But this is not actually one of those cases, because the word there can carry a bunch of different meanings, and so it really just kind of leaves you ambiguous. Some of those meanings could refer to um, God's will in that what he is absolutely making as a fact, that that's going to happen. But another flavor of meaning in that same word is like a desire um, or like a law. So, like,
0: I've always heard it compared to uh, the Ten Commandments. Right. God's desire is that no man should murder, right? He says, "Thou shalt not murder," um, but obviously there's murder happening. So it's sovereign will versus desired will, if you will.
3: I've also heard, <clears throat> and I don't know the word. You you may that um, the Greek for <clears throat> for all in that passage is a. Word that most closely means all types, all kinds, all kinds of man. So it goes to this idea that you know every nation, every tongue,
0: right? Which is definitely biblical. Yeah. Right. More more biblical than every single person. Oh, no, yeah, for sure. Right. Um, and then I had a thought and I forgot it. That one. Right? Oh, I remember now. Uh, I've also heard people explain that, and uh, they're like, in that passage, um, I'm pretty sure the, uh, was it in 1 Peter? I thought it was Paul
1: that said that, actually. The verse that we're referring to is in 2 Peter, chapter 3. Okay. Uh, can you read it then? I yes. might
0: be thinking of a different verse.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to read a little bit of the context, too. Um, It says, but do not overlook this one fact. This is in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, of course, the part there is uh, not wishing, not desiring, that, um, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so, yeah, this is one of those things where you go back and you dig into the Greek in this case, and that doesn't really provide a whole lot of clarity because those words are um, ambiguous. They can be used for different purposes in different contexts. However, um, even in the English, there is a simple way to uh, discern what this is saying. And it's honestly just a simple point of um, syntax and grammar, the way that we understand our language. He says, um, He is patient towards you. Alright, so this is a letter that Peter is writing. He has an intended intended audience. And he's saying, you. He's talking to them in particular. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Now, the understood context of any, there's an understood, unstated preposition there. Not wishing that any of you should perish. The people reading the letter. Right. That would, honestly, that would just be strange if all of a sudden he was talking about everybody in the whole entire world. Yeah, because,
0: I yes, we have these books, and I'm grateful, but they weren't written... To us specifically, they had an audience, so you know always have to keep that in mind when
2: uh, interpreting a passage of scripture. I'll say it's often when you take—I mean that's context is key because when you take it from that, you begin to read into what you're reading, and that's how you get all the kinds of just misconceptions and sometimes no. just straight up heresy yeah. <laughs> yeah. is, is like, when you remove the original intent and meaning and person and audience and all those things. Exactly. And
0: again, I'm not saying that there's nothing that we can't learn from these things, right? Uh, just that if you take it just at face value and forget that he's writing to Christians and that he's talking to Christians in this particular scenario, then you can take it and twist it and end up with a completely different meaning from what's intended.
1: Right, and we don't have to guess at that, so let's just back up the very first verses of Second Peter, chapter 1. It says, Simon, or Simeon, Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so that's who's writing it, to... Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So this is to whom this letter is addressed. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So later on in the letter when he says, you, any of you, that's who he's referring to. So as believers, as Christ followers, of course, there was a specific group of Christians in his time that he was writing to, but God has preserved this letter. <clears throat> we believe he's inspired it, and it is still relevant to us who also meet that description. Um, so when he is saying to you, that's who he's talking about. He's not writing this letter to the whole entire world. Um He's writing it to those specifically. He's writing it to a group of people who are at their wits' end. They're, you know, all kinds of things are happening. And so he's talking about look, don't get discouraged when you don't see God working. He's not slow like you think he is. Like a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as a day. So he is not willing. He is not desiring that any of you should perish yeah. that I mean that's and, the
0: context of this yeah. and considering that um, I feel like that does change because earlier we were talking about desire, will versus sovereign will like with that in mind it really does change what desire means in that passage as well like if Peter is specifically talking to Christians who have come to know him, Jesus then it is literally I mean we'll talk more about it later with uh, perseverance of the saints but it's literally his desire his sovereign will that none of them perish but would go on and be with him later in life or after life
3: I guess
1: Yeah, and that all well, all of you um will reach repentance. And so that's, again, a testament of the power of the Spirit of God, that all of those to whom this faith is given will reach repentance. There is not going to be a case where someone starts the journey with Christ and they just don't make it by the end, they just, they don't reach that sanctification threshold. So that is a promise to us and it's comforting because this is God working in us and that is just as important um, to talk about alongside of limited atonement or as others have put it particular redemption because it really is the idea of of a specific and powerful redemption of a particular people. And there are a couple of points to, to really pick out and, and make sure are clear in this. Number one, this doctrine is not saying that Christ is unable to save everyone. That's crucial. He is able that the blood of Christ is powerful enough that it could have saved everyone. It is not an issue. The atonement is not limited in the sense that it could not save everyone. It is limited in the sense that it is particular. There is a particular group of people that Christ has elected to save. But John 3.16, Dusty. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because John 3.16, I said I wasn't going to proof text, but that is actually my favorite proof text for limited atonement. Let's read it, shall we? And remember, in, in this context, that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, "For God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son." Okay, we usually stop right there. <laughs> God loved the world, and he did. He did indeed love the entire world, and that word "world" there—it means world. It means that's a lot of people. Okay. That he gave his only son. Yeah, it literally could just mean the world, Mother Earth. That <laughs> whoever believes in him. Now wait a minute. That is a limit. That is a particular group of people that he is naming there. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then
0: that just opens up the door to, how does somebody believe? Where does that come from? Yeah. And then just go back to the last two points.
1: Right. And read a little further down in 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And so again, that's another important thing to note. I'll probably come back and talk about that a little bit more. But it is not simply the rejection of Christ in a moment of an altar call <clears throat> that condemns them to hell. This is what the scripture says. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. already it's yeah, already I condemned. Yeah, I don't know that I've already...
0: Already. Uh, I don't know that I've ever noticed already in that passage.
1: Well, and, you know, expounding on that, based on what other scriptures tell us, they don't believe because they're dead in their trespasses. They are already condemned by the condition of of, of their soul. They're already condemned by the deadness and the curse of their sin. They don't believe and they're condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, and I, I mean, honestly, I could just continue reading the rest of the book of John to drive that point home. I believe all, all of Scripture echoes this, but... John 3:16 is not a rebuttal to limited atonement it is an echo of limited atonement it is <clears throat> it is the limit of atonement whoever believes that is the particular group of people that Christ has redeemed and people get claustrophobic by this doctrine because they don't believe Something in them wants to argue with there being a particular group of people as though it's not enough. But here's the point this is God loving the world. And this is the revealing of the mystery in the New Testament that it is the world that God loves, not only the Jews, not only this ethnic group, not only this particular group of people that is tied to a particular location or a particular language or a particular skin color or a particular set of cultures. God loves the world and the group of people that God has set aside from the world the thing that unites them is belief in Christ. Not anything else. But belief in Christ Christ is what unites them not a language not a not a tradition not a skin color not a location and so that is revolutionary at that time especially even now today yeah. you would
0: think though that they would get it at least a little bit because there was the chick from Jericho and then also Ruth, which I guess if the chick from Jericho, yeah, I, don't I don't remember, remember her name. The prostitute. Yeah. Rahab from the block. Yeah. in the law. Well, yeah. <laughs> in but the I say of that. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I say that, but
1: they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, so they wouldn't have. Never mind. So, this, this doctrine of limited atonement is one of the. Um. Probably the most. Refuted. That's probably not the right word because that disputed. Disputed. Yeah, refuted implies that they were successful, and that's not true. But (laughs) you know, it it is probably the most disputed of the five, and it's because we we ascribe that we ascribe to that this sense that again God is being racist or God is being um, ethnocentric in some way. But scripture is clear, this is not a, this group of people, the thing that unites them is simply that belief in Christ. Um, So, we should make sure that we're clear whenever we're talking about this, that we're not saying that uh, Jesus didn't have enough power in his blood to save everyone. That's not what we mean by this at all. But... It was that he set he set out to save this particular group of people in the first place. And again, I don't want to proof text this to death, but I mean I could spend an hour reading out verse after verse when Jesus himself said, "I have these particular people that you've sent me in his high priestly prayer in John 16, 17. John 17, yeah, he says, I'm not, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the world. Yeah. I'm talking about these particular people that you sent me. That's a great, probably
0: my favorite chapter of scripture. Honestly,
2: this is probably somewhat. I mean, it's related, but it's a little bit beside the point. But I, I just want to. Do you think that a lot of the dispute, a lot of the the about limited limited atonement that people take such issue with. Do you think a lot of it comes from, it has a lot more to do with the way that they think, oh, let me try to get myself together. I feel like a lot of people are like, well, there's there's a group out there that teaches that only a certain group of people are going to be saved. Um, Do you think it's almost like they... Think that particularly like Calvinist or Reformed people or whatever. Do you think it has more to do with them thinking that it's like arrogance, like wanting to create this like closed club of people? I mean, do you think it's like perception more so than actually taking issue with the idea? Because when you describe it like that, when you talk about God is saving, I mean, because they have no problem with. God is, is saving people from all nation, tribe, tongue, group God is saving from all the peoples of the earth, they have no problem with that but when you talk about there are people that God is going to save then all of a sudden it's, they start. everyone starts acting weird about it so right. do you think it has a lot more to do with maybe perception because they're trying to apply to the way God is, is limiting his atonement do you think it's almost like they're they're putting on God what they see in like very exclusive like clubs and organizations and, and orders and, and groups and things like that? Do you think it's a lot more they're reading onto God what is not?
1: Yeah, there? I, th- I think there is a lot of fear there, and I don't think it's all unfounded. Again, like like with um, the election discussion, um, of course, this goes hand in hand with election. I think there is a history um, within the church, or within people who have called themselves part of the church, where they have had that arrogant attitude, and they just, I mean, quite honestly, they were racist. They were racist, or they had some other set of ideologies that were not Christ-like, that they used this doctrine to justify that. But that doesn't mean that this is in any way related to that. But. I think it's also important to point out that this mindset, you know, we we say there's a particular group of people that Jesus is going to save and no one else. Okay. Yeah, that sounds scary to some people. But any orthodox Protestant church teaches that. They just don't say it that way. Because they will say, You are only the people who believe in Christ are saved. If you walk up into that church and say, Well, I think we're all going to make it, they're going to tell you to get out. Right.
2: It's almost like the second they hear something related to Reformed theology or Calvinism or whatever, it's like they have these weird, like PTSD, like they remember. It was almost like whenever these ideas, whenever the people started leaving, because almost all Protestant denominations. The Protestant Reformation began as a. I mean, the Reformed theology and all of that comes out in Martin Luther. It obviously comes out in John Calvin. So it's technically, almost all Protestant denominations were Calvinistic up until. I mean, you know, Methodism obviously is not. But like, even like Southern Baptists, even. But now there's all these groups, particularly in the. In anywhere from like the 30s to the 50s, 60s. There's a lot of like people being very anti Reformed or anti. Calvinists per se, and so we see that today, and it's almost like whoever started being anti-reformed theology or anti-Tulip or anti these things, which we all agree is our biblical legitimate biblical doctrines, it's almost like they just did, disliked the the reformed people of their day, and now they've just they've like put that down through the generations, and now people are like they hear something that sounds. Calvinistic, and they're like, oh, but it's like what you're saying. They say that same thing. Otherwise, no one would call anyone to repent. Right. If they believed that God could just saved everybody, they would be universalists, and they wouldn't care. And and so it's not re- Reformed theology doesn't make people not care about evangelism. It's actually the opposite; would make you not care. Right. It's it's like they hear the word, and it's just a trigger word, and all of a sudden they have these like weird, you know, crazy flashbacks.
0: Yeah, um, probably, I would say, i probably, yes. Um, but also, it's people, um, they realize like, oh, a good God won't wouldn't do that. He wouldn't make it to where only a few people will get saved, uh, the, and not offer it to every single person on the planet. Um, and so they're imposing what they view to be good mm-hmm. upon God, so... Uh, that and also like you know people are like, well, I don't think there's a list or anything and literally revelations like yeah the Lamb's Book of Life is right here
1: right Just overlook that
3: yeah yeah so both of those things I I I think it's both of those I I know a guy who is very I mean I'd say almost like classically reformed he grew up in the reformed faith and got a <coughs> reformed like Bible education and um, is currently at a church I attended for a little while that is largely not reformed but he's been put in a position of of teaching at that church and um, he teaches the truth he teaches the Bible as it is written and what I've noticed is these people who if you came to them and said oh well I'm going to teach limited atonement, or I'm going to teach total depravity, or, or unconditional election, they would freak out. But when he doesn't use those words, when he doesn't use the quote-unquote reform terminology, and just preaches the truth from the word of God, these people find themselves like, well, alright, the Bible does say that. We just read it out of the Bible. That is right. what it says. Um, but then there there are those who say like, well, a god that chooses to send people to hell just cuz he wants to that doesn't sound like a good god to me and what they've actually done is they've made up their own god in their head and they say well this what what you're calling god doesn't match the god that i would make if i made god so i don't accept that they don't realize that that's idolatry and it's a self-idolatry you're saying that like God is limited to what I think God should be, when in reality we're called to be like we're called to view God as God is, like we should view God as who he is God's not, not confined to what we think is good, what is good is defined by what God does and um, so yeah, I, th- I think we see both of those not for sure uh,
0: a little rabbit trail I know you're talking about <laughs> I remember uh, went there and listened to one of them and somebody got upset because he was like, yeah, the Trinity is a thing. It <laughs> was
3: crazy. Man. Yeah. But the weird thing is is um, they stopped coming yeah. for about two weeks. Really? And they started coming
2: back. I was about to say, I saw a Facebook post with that person in it. Yeah. I just happened to notice that person in particular. I'm like, how funny. And they, yeah. they started coming back specifically
3: to Bruce's Bible studies. So yeah.
1: So I think it's important the name out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. That out. <laughs> do you want me to? That's yeah, all right. So I think it's important also to to have a, a sober realization that we we've gotta own up to our history even though like we didn't do it. Calvinism <coughs> has There have been jerks, you know. There have been Calvinist jerks. Just cage stages. Yeah, and I mean, not only a long time ago, but but even now, there are people who they're just jerks about it, and they they throw it around. They bully people with the terms, and that's not okay. Even if they're right, you don't have to be a jerk about it. It's like the people who fast, and they're like, "Oh, look at me,
0: look at me, I'm doing this good thing." It's the same with. Oh, look at me! I have this correct doctrine. I'm smarter than you.
2: Right. One of that's one all of the those, most, That's all they want. One of the most beautiful things, like one of the most, it, like not inspirational, but like encouraging things and like beautiful things, is someone who has a robust doctrine, like a robust reform theology, and they're humble and loving. I mean, it. Like that's one of the most beautiful. Because I honestly believe that that reformed theology, not what people think reformed theology, but reformed theology is, as far as I can tell, the most biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Like and so it's not you're not right and it's not right because it is reformed or because you're reformed, but it just is that those doctrines happen to be be right. And so when you adhere to those doctrines rightly with a right heart The reason why it's so encouraging, the reason why it's so just makes me excited and joyful is simply just because it is biblical, because it is following Jesus. Um, But but you're right, there are people who wield it as a weapon, and it's like you are totally missing the point. Your your actions and your attitude betray what you say you believe doctrinally. Yeah, it's
3: really a great irony because one of our favorite verses to go to. Is um, salvation, which is not of ourselves, so that none may boast. Right, like we're like salvation. It's not of yourself. Like ha 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 ha. Yeah. So that none may boast. Yeah. Like we 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 didn't do anything, so we have nothing to boast about. We have nothing to rob in people's faces. We need to be humble and accept that it's grace, and then show that same grace to others if anything
2: the theology is essentially saying what John the Baptist said behold the lamb of god right oh, wow. that's all that's all it is it's it's not look at me haha I'm part of the elect it's
1: behold right and um, and so as we as we're talking about these doctrines with other people of course you know evangelical calvinists imagine that mm-hmm. and as we are sharing the good news and it is good news with these other people, we have to adopt the attitude of Paul. He's he said, "I'm not coming to you with lofty words of wisdom." I mean, these all of these terms—limited atonement—we talk about monergism, we talk about Calvinism. You know, these are these are fine words. Like theologians labor to coin these terms into and, and to codify this into a, a systematic theology, and that's it's good and it's fruitful work and it's helpful for us to know these terms but at the same time that is not the thing jesus is the thing and so i don't care if someone ever can say oh yes i do believe in the doctrine of limited atonement but i do care whether they know that the god of this universe who has every right to crumble them up and throw them away set out to win them specifically, that he is pursuing them, and that the Spirit of God is regenerating their heart on purpose, not based on anything that they did, but because he sovereignly elected to save them, so that he can shower them with grace and mercy, them in particular. And so, however they need to say that, however they need to word that in their mind, to wrap their mind around it, the point is knowing Jesus, the point is eternal life. The point is not to have more people thrown around the tulips.
2: It would be the same thing, like with the Pharisees, right? Who knew the law but did not see, right? Like they knew, like they they memorized, they knew the law, they discussed the law, like they were they were the religious elite, but yet the person that everything of all that scripture. Was pointing to literally appeared before them and declared himself as such, and they could not see. It right. would basically be the same thing. You can know the. You could have read the Institutes. You could know Grudem's systematic theology or, or or any other systematic theology, not just his, but you can know all those things. You can have read all the books and yada yada. But if you have not love, right, right, then it's pointless, and that's that's. A pitfall, I think that that's a common uh, we have that bent, right? Like reformed people sometimes like we have that bent. That's a common if there's anything that sort of binds a lot of reformed brothers together it's, it's the ability of us to think that we are somehow superior or that we have, we have, we have, it's almost, honestly sometimes it's almost like almost a Gnostic thing like we have the secret knowledge that we have not been previously taught at least I almost felt that way as being raised Southern Baptist though Baptists historically are reformed but like when i when I, when these things were shared when this particular theology was shared um I was like it almost like came out of the mists you know like it was this weird secret thing and, and now I realize that it's totally not but it it you know anyways you we can miss the point. We can so easily miss, like when we talk about being totally depraved, it's like, yes, That's, you you are totally depraved, right. man who right. is prideful. Yeah, and you shouldn't
0: boast and being like, you're totally depraved. Right, what, That's like, dreams, that should grieve. Yeah, dude. you should be on your knees crying at the thought of this person that you know for all eternity will be... Suffering at the hand of God, never, ever being able to get any relief from that. Wanting just a drop of water, and God is like, no. Right? There's no reason to be boastful and be like, ha, 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 ha. You don't believe in this?
3: Ha, <laughs> ha, you know, there's none at all. It's
0: disgusting.
3: Yeah, there are times where where we tend to get so called up and knowing about God and about Jesus that we forget to act like God and like Jesus and I have to wonder I I know this isn't what this verse is about in particular but I have to wonder if it's applicable Um, Jesus himself said that he must leave and he will send down a helper than the Holy Spirit and that through that We would do greater works than he. I have to wonder if that includes showing grace and and mercy because that's one thing that Jesus came to do and that through the power of the Holy Spirit we're capable of showing that same grace but we so often neglect and refuse to do so. Um, No matter how prideful we are, um, no matter how arrogant we are, we are capable of being graceful. We need to seek it and we need to ask for repentance and ask to be given that grace um, and, then, and then seek to show it.
1: Right. And another reason for this arrogance that we so often see and so often are guilty of ourselves uh, is it goes hand in hand with this limited atonement belief. If you're not a universalist, but you also don't believe in limited atonement, then chances are the philosophy, the doctrine that you hold to, says that Jesus potentially died for everyone. In other words, he offers a gift, but you either accept it or reject it. At which point, when you reject it, you are then condemned to hell which of, of course you know the verse that we read you are already condemned that would obviously um, Boy, challenge yeah. that but yeah. along with every, everything else that yeah. we read there but but that is a very common belief and that actually you have to do a lot of theological gymnastics to believe that and the most comical situation i can recall with that there's a particular guy that in college I had a confrontation with I wasn't trying to have a confrontation Um, I was actually trying to get out of the room I had places to be but he suddenly wanted to talk about limited atonement and if you believe that Jesus died for everyone then you must either believe that everyone's sins are forgiven or that Jesus's blood is not sufficient for salvation. Those are the only alter- only options that I can see because if he died for everyone, if his blood was shed for everyone, and his blood is powerful for salvation, then everyone would be saved. Or if you're not a universalist and you don't believe that everyone is saved, then you must be saying that His blood is not totally sufficient for salvation. And although you would never say it that way, that is what you are practically believing. But here's how you would hear that. Well, His blood covers your sin, but you have to accept it.
0: They lean on free will. Right.
1: Well, theologically, when you get backed into a corner there, and this is what this guy did, what you're essentially saying is everyone is forgiven of every sin except rejection of Christ. And that rejection of Christ is the only sin, ultimately, that will send you to hell. No, that's just completely ignoring
0: grieving the Holy Spirit, whatever that means. I'm not really sure. that I mean, literally, Jesus says that's the only... <laughs> Peter, I mean, following that logic, Peter shouldn't have been one of the apostles
1: anymore precisely precisely because Peter rejected Christ three times right and so you know never mind the abundance of scriptures that also poke holes into that that if you believe that if you believe that rejecting Christ is is the thing that sends you to hell then that gives you the permission essentially to be arrogant, to say, well, I didn't reject Christ, but you did, or you are. And so I deserve to go to heaven. And you deserve to go to hell. Because you rejected Christ, and I didn't. Which again, we've already addressed that with total depravity and unconditional election. But this is another, again, they all build on each other. And this is another area where that belief in limited atonement is crucial to understanding our place in this story of salvation we're the recipient we did nothing and so Christ's blood according to scripture is powerful enough completely to save it requires nothing from us we've already established that there is no goodness in us we do reject Christ so, if it were dependent upon us not to reject Christ in order to be saved, no one would be saved. So, anyway, I, I can go back around in circles a lot with that because it just it it is a self defeating argument. I love the way that R. C. Sproul put it. I'm quoting him a lot today. Um not see the problem. No, no, not really.
2: <laughs> Again, not a not a bad person to regurgitate.
1: Right, but he talks about uh, if limited atonement is not true, then you would have you would either have to be an, a universalist and believe that everyone is going to be saved, or you would have to say that Jesus gave his life in the hopes that some people would be saved. But you would have to uh, admit the possibility that no one could be saved because you're saying necessarily that it's contingent upon us accepting that gift. Which would mean, if that were left in our court, that would mean that there is the possibility that Christ's death would accomplish nothing. And is that, is that the God of Scripture? Is that the God that we believe in? Is that the God who has revealed himself in Scripture? The God who risked everything? on a gamble because that would be the possibility that no one would accept Christ